to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, that is, be open. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them had, have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? He said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to these that also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthia. You join with me in praying and asking that God would be our great helper and our teacher as we consider his word to us this morning. Father, we come before you as we often see pictured in your very word as those who are hungry those who are needy, Lord, even those who are ignorant and unable to hear the goodness of your voice, Lord, those who are seeking mercy and seeking help. We come to you, Father, in full recognition of our weakness, even physical fatigue and just feeling under the weather or even out of it, sluggish of soul and weary to even lift our voices and worship you this morning as you deserve. Father, we come on the basis of your revelation to us that you are a heavenly father who seeks to give mercy to his children. So Lord, would you be merciful to us this morning? Would you help us? Would you revive our souls and cause us to see Christ as he is? Would you, by the work and the ministry of your very spirit, awaken us to your goodness and kindness and faithfulness? Would you help us bring to us that great assurance of faith that you are most favorable and most most beneficial to your to your children and to your people that you delight to give mercy help us this morning and lord especially for any of those who are here who have yet to know you in this great mercy maybe misunderstanding the the goodness and the grace that is extended in christ lord would you do also that great work that only you can do by bringing faith to where it does not exist and as Greg prayed earlier, giving us hearts of flesh and replacing hearts of stone. We pray that you would do this for Christ's sake and for his glory. Amen. Willing, willing to wager that most all of us are familiar with that continual advice in any real estate adventures. That advice would be location, location, and location bring that up because that same advice that really applies here in Mark chapter 7 as location becomes this great clue for us, the reader, to really draw into and have some insight into the actual impact of this passage that's before us. In order for us to really make sense of the text and to draw any sort of biblical conclusions, we are meant to notice the particular location that Jesus has ventured into. He has left the region of Israel. He has ventured into Galilee intentionally, or excuse me, into Western Galilee, intentionally withdrawing into the region, as Mark says, of Tyre and Sidon. Now this would be modern day Lebanon. It was known as Phoenicia in the Old Testament. It was most certainly not a Jewish 
region. And this was most explicitly a Gentile region, a region with a long history of antagonism towards God's people. This was the very reason, uh, the very region where Jezebel, this great wicked woman of the Old Testament who persecuted God's prophets and led Israel astray, this is where she was from. And to the Jew, this region represents really the most extreme expression of paganism and rejection of God. That's who these people are. That's where they live. Now remember, it's no coincidence that Mark records this directly following Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees and their great concern over what is clean and what is unclean. Jesus goes right to the literal heart of the matter, reminding them that it's not what is external, but what is internal, our hearts, that is the real concern. And upon this very conversation about uncleanness and the need for cleanliness, Christ ventures into unclean territory. He goes right into the region of Tyre and Sidon, this very region of Gentile, uh, Gentile dwelling. As Christ moves beyond the border, he ventures into this territory. What we're meant to see is more than just geography. What we're meant to see is more than just historical facts. What Mark wants us to see is something more of the good news that he is continually putting before us that Christ has come to announce and accomplish. Specifically, who is this good news for? What type of person is this good news for? You've been seeing it in different expressions and different circumstances, women and children, fathers and their little daughters, hungry crowds, but now this portion, it moves into a different region and a very different emphasis, wanting us to see it's good news even for these. So in the portion of scripture before us this morning, we are meant to see and understand who is it that's really welcome in God's kingdom. Maybe you're wondering that for yourself this morning. Who is really welcome in God's kingdom? Who does God say, this is who my mercy is for? It might surprise you, because maybe your assumption is that it's for a certain type of person and not for another type of person. But I would encourage you to listen to what the scriptures teach, that it is good news for the desperate and for the humble. Mark would have us see that it's good news for the ignorant and the unaware, and it's good news for the hungry and the weary. Let's consider this portion as we see how it's good news, first of all, for the desperate and the humble. This takes us back to verse 24 of chapter 7. If we consider Jesus' interaction with this woman, consider how her approach towards Christ, it teaches us of something of our own approach as we would come to him. Look back at her request in verse 24. It says, from there that he rose and away, went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house, did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, came and fell down at his feet. And the description of her, she was a woman, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. Now, in order to feel the full weight of this encounter, we need to understand and emphasize the context in which this is taking place. As we said, the region is beyond that of Israel. It's the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's this region in this Gentile territory with a long history of antagonism towards God's people. And of all the people that could approach Jesus in this region, this woman has the most going against her. He's in a least likely region, and of all the people in that region, she would rank as the least likely as to whom you would think Christ would have any interaction with or even consider extending any mercy to. Notice how Mark's description of her seems to escalate with each word in verse 26. She's a woman. She's a Gentile. 
Syrophoenician with the demoniac daughter. The issue here is not simply her nationality. It's not even um, her gender. It is all of this combined and that also her inherited religion. Being a Phoenician or a Greek, it wasn't that she didn't worship the God of Abraham. It's that she worshiped a myriad of gods. She was actually a foreigner to this God of Abraham, this God of Isaac, this God of Jacob. She did not seek the God of God's people. And yet she comes to him and to the Pharisee or to the scribe that Jesus has just had an interaction with, this woman would represent everything that they would be avoiding. She checks all the boxes of the very type of person that you, a religious, devout seeker of God, would expect to say, I'm going to take a step back. And yet she comes to Jesus. And so we must read it with that tension. This person comes to Jesus. This woman, this Gentile, this woman with an unclean spirit in her daughter. And so we're meant to read it with this question right at the forefront of our minds, what is Jesus going to do with her? His response is there in verse 27. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In our culture, dogs somehow, mysteriously, have elevated to family status. <laughs> Please do not impose your cultural assumptions upon this text. Dogs, historically within scripture and Hebrew writing, have symbolically really represented all that is opposed to God. All that is unclean. Everything that is outside of the covenant that God has made with his people. Jesus says, then, are you coming to me and asking me to interrupt this meal, take the food off of this table, and give it to those who are outside, the unclean? Are you asking that the goodness, the mercy, the power of God be extended to someone outside of the people of Israel? Is that what you're asking? Now remember, where we sit this morning, especially if you're a Christian and you're familiar with your Bible, we sit this morning reading with a particular vantage point, an actual advantage that we read this story on the other side of the cross. We know this Jesus that is interacting with this woman. We know that he eventually is going to go to a cross where he will be crucified, where he will die, that he will be buried for the sins of God's people, and he will rise again, and he will gather his people from every tribe, tongue, nation to himself. We read this interaction with that knowledge. But remember where this is happening in unfolding covenant redemption. That hasn't happened yet. The mystery of the kingdom is, is still really in seed form. It's yet to, to fully bloom to where we would sing, come behold this wondrous mystery hasn't been fully made known. It's happening, but it's not fully known. Woman, are you asking that this mercy would move beyond these borders? I wish we could see Jesus' face and tone of voice. The key is to notice the word verse. But he says, let the little children be fed first. Jesus says there's a plan here. We need to respect the order. Why does he say first? Well, it's our clue as to exactly what we're speaking of, this unfolding plan of the mystery of redemption that God in his sovereign, gracious plan has chosen to bring about the salvation of his people through a particular people. Paul gets at this in his introduction to the church of Rome, Romans 1.16. Many of us know the first 
few clauses of this particular scripture. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek. Let the little children be fed first. Remember this vantage point that we are reading Mark and remember this unfolding plan of redemption. What Jesus says here to this woman is the children have priority. The children have priority over what you're asking. Well, what's her reaction to this? Look back at verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet. Yet, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Notice something. This woman is not offended. We can go to such great lengths to soften the words that Jesus said and go back to our original language and say, he uses this form of, this form of dog. It's kind of household dog, so he's not calling her a mongrel. He's, and we can try and soften the edge of what Jesus says. But notice she's not offended. But rather, she engages further by accepting his illustration, actually placing herself into it, and modifying the emphasis. She says, yes, yet, in what you've just said, there is an aspect that I'm asking you would remember. She simply says, I'm not asking for a meal. I'm not even asking for a seat at the table. I'm not asking to be called a child. I'm just looking for a She's not offended by what Jesus says. She's not put off by his statement. She doesn't stamp her foot and march through the litany of what she deserves or how this is somehow his fault. She simply says, yes, I hear you. Yet, a crumb. She approaches Jesus with an understanding of Israel's privilege and her being an outsider. Essentially, what is in this response, it's loaded with this understanding where she is saying, I don't worship your God. I don't obey your commandments. Can I please just get a crumb? Don't get up. Don't interrupt the meal. I will just take the smallest fragment of a leftover of your mercy. That's what I'm asking for here. Now, let's ask the obvious question. Why in the world does she answer this way? Why is she not offended? Why is she not put off by Jesus' statement of priority? I think Mark includes this primarily because she understands something that we often neglect. She doesn't come on the basis of her goodness. She doesn't come and approach on the basis of her own merit. She comes on the basis of Christ's mercy. She comes on the basis pleading for his goodness. This woman is not too proud to accept what Jesus has to say about her condition. She hears it. She receives it and says, yet can I just have a crumb? Now, the sting of Jesus' statement to this woman is not unlike the sting of God's word, which often comes to us. Because when we come through the scriptures and we begin to read and we hear what Christ says to us, we hear something similar. We hear that in our natural state, because of sin, that you and I are wicked. We hear that we're selfish. We hear that we're arrogant. We hear that we're deceivers. We hear that we're quick to blame others and justify our decisions and our circumstance and any blemish upon our otherwise good character. We hear that we're actually created to be image bearers of God, but rebels in that. That we've rejected the good authority of our creator and we've insisted actually, no, all become the authority of, of who I am. And we hear that we are owed nothing but one thing judgment. That stings. And when God speaks to us with those stinging words, we can either respond in pride or humility. We can 
respond in pride, which would be a rejection of Jesus's assessment of, of our true condition. We can walk away and try and soften his words and yeah, that's what the Bible says, but here's what that means for my life and here's why it's a little bit different and here's why it just doesn't apply in this situation. And what we end up doing is creating a God who never actually offends. He never actually calls us out. He never actually speaks to the reality of who we are. He basically affirms us as good. Pride creates that sort of assessment. Or we can respond in humility. We can, like this woman, accept Jesus' words about our condition and place ourselves in his story. And say, yes, that's true. Have you come to Jesus as he says you are? Not as you think you are. Not as you want to be. But have you come to Christ purely as he says that you are? Because if we come to him seeking to downplay or excuse our true condition or soften the edges somehow of who we are, we actually sabotage our understanding of our need for grace. Because grace isn't that magnificent when we approach as a cleaned up, better idea of ourselves than we really are. If we come to admitting only a version of my guilt, I'll give you that, but not this. A version of our guilt, then what happens is our conscience really doesn't let us rest because now I know I'm actually much worse off than I admit, but I'm just not admitting it, and I'm playing this game. But if we come to Jesus with the full embrace of all that we are and all that he says that we are, what we actually find is the mercy that we actually need. The response of humility here is exactly what this woman does, and it is exactly what Christ commends her for. This parallel account in Matthew 15, Jesus answered her, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Yes, Lord. And yet even the dogs get a crumb under the table. You have great faith. You have great faith in who I am. That you would press forward, and not on the basis of who you are or what you haven't done or have done, but you're just asking out of the mercy of the overflow. Could you just have a bit? Church, we ought to remind ourselves in this that faith is often found in the most unlikely places. J.C. Ryle reminds us that it is grace, not place, which makes people believers. What he means is that, remember, Jesus, he's in Gentile land. He's not in Israel. You would expect to find strong faith among the people of Israel that have been given the covenants and the scriptures and heard the promises. You would expect to find great faith in Nazareth or in Capernaum, where Jesus spent most of his time. And the last place that you would expect to find this sort of faith in the mercy of Christ is in Gentile territory. But this woman believed, and many of the people in Galilee did not. Let this be a reminder to us. Do not ever say, that person will never come to faith. This one will never return. Grace is often found in the most unlikely of places. Who would have ever expected Saul, the great persecutor of Christians, to become the great missionary to the Gentiles? It was John Newton, the converted slave trader, who said, I have never despaired of any man since God saved me. A wonderful perspective. Regardless of your background, regardless of your need, when you approach this Jesus in faith, looking for mercy, the scriptures declare that he hears and he responds. The gospel is good news for the humble and the desperate. The gospel is also good news for the ignorant and the unaware. We see this. In the next verses, 31 through 37, 
When Jesus returns from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he goes across to the Sea of Galilee to the western, southern western shore to this region of Decapolis. And they bring to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him, just as Christ had done on other occasions, lay your hands upon him, heal him. And Christ interacts with this man. Within this encounter here in verses 31 and following, Mark gives to us this great insight as to how Christ comes to us. In a very real and I think a very tangible sense, this is a word picture of the incarnation of God becoming man. This is what it means to say God has come in the flesh. When God comes, what does he do to us? First of all, we see that he draws near to us. He goes to Decapolis. The whole encounter is a parable of grace. Jesus goes out of his way some 20 miles, returning to this region that he'd actually been to before. Do you remember that? Back in Mark chapter 5, he healed a man who lived amongst the tombs with a legion of demons. This time, there's a dramatically different welcome. Remember how Jesus last left the region? They begged him to leave after the herd of pigs, pigs jumped into the waters below. Either this is an example of God preparing hearts before he goes, or the fruit of the first Gentile missionary. Because do you remember the man who was free from the legion of demons? He, he wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus did not permit him. He was given these instructions in Mark 5, verse 19. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Here Christ returns to the region of Decapolis, and there is a great crowd that awaits him, a man who is deaf, unable to speak. Jesus, have mercy. Would you have mercy? Would you lay your hands on this man? He draws near to us, but notice he also, in Mark's account, communicates with this man in a way that he might actually understand. Commenting on this passage, Sinclair Ferguson notes how Jesus seems to, in a sense, be using sign language to communicate with this man what he is doing and what he's going to do. After all, how do you tell a deaf man what you are going to do? Well, what does Jesus do? Well, he puts his fingers into the man's ears as if to say, I'm going to heal this. He touches his tongue as if to say, I'm going to fix this. And then he looks up to heaven as if to say, this is how it's going to be done. He communicates to this man in a way that he might understand. Do you realize that our Lord Jesus could have just simply said, be healed, and went along on his way? The man would have been restored. But instead, what does Jesus do? He takes this man aside, away from the distraction and the clamor of the crowds, to touch his ears to touch his tongue, in order to communicate with him. What a wonderful accommodation of Christ to this man. And do not forget, when we see Christ, we are given visibility, revelation of the unseen God. When we see Christ, we see a Father. His desire to accommodate those who are unable and ignorant to know of his goodness that he yet, even in our ignorance and our inability to hear his voice, to hear his word, he accommodates, comes to us, and enables us to hear, enables us to respond. And he does so in such a way that when we get grace, he gets glory. Because that's what happens in verse 37. After this happened, they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well, he even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. He has done all things well. Notice this, though. This miracle was not rescuing anyone from death. They're not delivering someone from a demon. This was not some life-threatening condition. <clears throat> well, certainly not ideal. You can exist without 
hearing or even without the ability to speak. And I think Mark records this for us to remind us that when Christ comes to restore, when Christ comes to save, salvation is most certainly rescue from death. But that's not all. The restoration of beauty is also what Christ is doing when he saves. Everything that God calls good because of Christ is brought to restoration through his word. Salvation is not about making us less human. It's actually making us fully human. The sort of humanity that God intends apart from the corruption and curse of sin. That is what restoration is. To make us fully creatures that he has designed. And the wonder of God's grace is that Jesus has come to restore joy. It's not just a pragmatic, I'm going to make you work, but I'm going to restore to you this goodness of actually rejoicing in what I have done. I bring this out because Mark uses one particular word to describe this man's inability to speak. And this word is used only one other place in the Greek translation of our Old Testament. And wouldn't you know, it's from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah continues to be this portion of scripture that brings illumination and texture to what Mark is seeking to say. Listen to Isaiah 35 and the promise there in verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, and say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, there's that word, sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Isaiah 35 is this of supreme significance because it shows us the significance of what the Messiah has come to do. That he actually enables his people to shout for joy because Jesus does all things well. Not that he does most things well. Maybe you've gotten an assessment like that at work or at school. For the most part, you read on your child's report card, they do pretty well. That's not the marks that Christ gives. Nor does it say he does those things that are necessary. That's far below what it says of Christ here as well. The breadth and the goodness of God's grace upon our lives can be summed up in this statement. He does all things well. Sin has made us deaf to the glories of God revealed in his word. Sin has blinded us to the beauty of who Christ is displayed plainly before us. And because of the corruption of our sin, we see no reason to testify of the goodness of God. But then we hear the gospel. We hear the promise of scripture. Fear not. Behold your God. He comes to save. He comes to us and he heals us so that we might praise him with redeemed lips, hands, and voices. And we join with those who say, behold, he has done all things well. The gospel, friends, is good news for those who are unable and unwilling to hear of God's goodness. He actually comes to us in our inability and our unwillingness and restores us. Restores us to the place that we see him as he is so that we too are able to say he does all things well. He heals us of our greatest ignorance, of our greatest unbelief. But it's not only good news for these. Lastly, let's remember that this gospel is good news for the hungry and for the weary. We see this there in chapter 8, verse 1, when we read, In those days, when a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. Do not hear this account of the feeding of the 4,000 and mistakenly think it's a, a rehashing or a retelling of 
what Mark just told us in the previous portion. Do not read this as just filler material that Mark had to use to pad his word count as he's completing his account of, of Christ's ministry. The feeding of these 4,000 is crucial when we keep in mind Mark's words in chapter 8, verse 1. In those days. In the days in which Jesus was in the Decapolis. In the days in which Jesus was near the Sea of Galilee, predominantly in Gentile territory. And the days in which Christ was not traversing in the land of Israel, but in the land of the outsiders. In those days, there was a crowd in the wilderness. And he said, let's feed them. Having just heard of Christ feeding the 5,000 in the northeastern shore of Galilee, what do we notice here in this southwestern feeding? What similarities do we hear in the feeding of the 5,000 and this feeding here of this multitude? Verse 2, we see in Jesus had compassion. Jesus had compassion on the crowd. The very same exact words Mark uses to describe what Christ felt towards Jewish crowds. He felt compassion. And here again in the Decapolis, he felt compassion to these crowds. He sees the crowds, and he is moved with this great compassion. And also in verse 6, what other similarity do we notice? Jesus does the same thing. He gives them bread. In fact, it's the very same image that was used with this Gentile Phoenician woman. And it reappears. What is he doing? He's giving bread to the Gentiles. He's giving bread to those outside. He's giving bread to dogs. The familiar pattern of what we heard in Mark 6, it's, it's meant to strike it. In fact, the three narratives are testifying of all the same things that Christ did on the other side of the lake, except these recipients are Gentiles. They were healed just as the Jews were healed. They were fed, just as Israel was fed. And the disciples were commissioned to serve the crowds, just as they were commissioned to serve the Jewish crowds. You can't escape what Mark is writing here, and what the Holy Spirit has inspired. Christ has come to bring bread to the nations. Christ has come that he might be glorified as the one who's gathering a people from all the nations. He is the bread of life, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. Now, I recognize, even in saying Jew and Gentile, and the tension that existed between these two people groups, we do not feel it in its full weight as it was in that day. I have tried. There is, there is no correlation to help us in our pluralistic, especially melting pot sort of nation, to understand the shock value of what we have just read, and that it doesn't end here. We cannot overlook the emphasis of what Mark is proclaiming and what goes on to be fully worked out in our New Testament. But we need to listen to what the scriptures teach. Would you turn over to Ephesians chapter two? Because if we want to see the emphasis of what Mark is recording, we need to remind ourselves just what we are doing here this morning as a result. Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body 
through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also, Gentiles, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's what Paul is saying. In God's plan of redemption, you are united to a people whom you literally have nothing in common with except Christ and his mercy. That is the full weight of what is being said. In God's plan of redemption, you are united to others whom you have literally nothing in common, so much so that you might say, outside of this, you are antagonistic towards one another, yet in Christ, you share something tremendously valuable in common. Recipients of Christ's mercy. Jews and Gentiles could not be further apart, yet God in his wisdom has chosen to redeem a people for his name by uniting such a divergent people even as this. Now, thinking about this, admittedly, there is a bit of romantic idealism to this stuff. What this means is that one day in the new heavens and the new earth, we will sit down with Swahili princes and Brazilian artists and Filipinos and Australians and South Africans and hear of their culture and listen to how good God has been. And we will rejoice out of the many tribes, tongues, languages, and people that are a part of this redeemed society. That is wonderful news. And we anticipate that day. And there's a bit of romantic idealism, as I said, even in thinking about that. But there's a more difficult and a more challenging implication to the same truth. And that is that the person next to you, the person across the room from you, the person in your Bible study that is altogether unlike you, has been reconciled to you and you to them, as you are both in Christ. The big idea is that Christ is after something so much bigger than gathering together groups of people who look, think, vote, and vacation just like you. He is not seeking to gather some suburban soccer moms over here and some rednecks over here and some white-collar workers and outdoor explorers into their own segregated groups and look at all the different people that God saves. That's not what it says. He aims to unite a people so diverse, even hostile towards each other naturally, so that this testimony of the depth and the breadth of redemption might be seen. We could call that sort of thing a gospel-revealing community. When God puts a people together like that, what that does is it exposes that there is something that unites them that is beyond explanation. There's no natural reason for these people to gather together and commit themselves to one another. This moves beyond natural affinities and hobbies and race and place and economies and status or even a particular neighborhood, that they traverse from a varieties of neighborhoods and ethnicities and backgrounds and hobbies and weekend adventures, and they are united together. A gospel-revealing community. A unity that's the basis of our unification glorifies God and testifies to his power because there's no natural reason as to why I would be committed to you and you to me other than Christ and his mercy. If this is what Christ is after, this reality, then we must begin to think outside ourselves. We must think 
outside of our own comforts, that we must go to the stranger who might be in this room, that we must welcome the outsider. Because if your idea of church is being surrounded by people who look like you, think like you, vote like you, share the same hobbies and pursue the same interests, friend, you have an unbiblical understanding of what church is. And if you're imagining a sort of church that could be big enough at some point that there's enough people within it so that you could find your your outdoor club or your needlepoint homeschool co-op or your seniors bowling league so that you can find more people who look like you so you can have real comfort and real friends, <coughs> then you have an unbiblical and twisted version of church life. And if you're visiting and you're thinking that you'll come back when there's more people that look like you, you have an unbiblical and a misunderstood idea of what this gathering is. Jesus did not die so that we could form a club of like-minded friends. You may have those sort of friends, but that's not what redemption creates. It creates something so much greater in unexplainable and natural terms than that. He died to gather people out of every tribe, tongue, race, ethnicity, class of wealth, every political party, and display them before the watching world so that he might be glorified. Because when you look at that, you say, what in the world is going on here? This is not natural. And you say, you're absolutely right. This is a supernatural community. It defies natural reasoning. It defies natural affinity. It is a gospel-revealing community. Christ died, he rose again, not just to forgive the sins of his people, but to create a new community. A community that transcends these sort of natural affinities and affections of shared hobbies and skin color or political party. Beloved, if this is true, it means that you and I must be willing to be uncomfortable, even inconvenienced and stretched in our willingness to love and to serve one another. This is not something that we have to manufacture and conjure up before you invite that family over that you're in the, in the corner just stretching, getting your game face on. Okay, I can do this. It's not something that we conjure up in our flesh. It is the result of an overflowing reality of who we are. We both eat crumbs from the same table. We get mercy. And you keep reading, and it's greater than that. You find that Christ actually invites us to his table. That we are the recipients who deserve much, much, much less judgment. But what we receive in Christ is much, much, much greater. What we receive is adoption as sons. What we receive is the joy of forgiveness and the restoration of who God creates us to be. Just like the Canaanite woman who we realize we're beggars simply looking for a few crumbs, just like the death of the mute man, we realize we've been awakened to his goodness. For those who are saying he does all things well. So this realization, it does something. It gives us the ability to have this sort of community that is wide and deep. In, in, its, in its breadth, and that it includes within the church a sort of people as divergent as Jew and Gentile. The furthest ends of the spectrum that you could think of, Christ says, welcome. But it not only grows us in breadth, it grows us in this depth, and he brings us together not simply to tolerate one another. Well, we checked that box, and so we got them over. Not simply to tolerate. But to use the language of the New Testament, we describe ourselves as a new household, as, as a new people, as the family of God. And it grows us in our depth of who we are and how we see one another. It's not by accident that the very natural bonds of ethnicity and family are used to describe the depth of God's new family. This is what God is doing. This is what he's called and brought us into and here's what I find amazing. When God does this, what Paul says to the church in Ephesus, 
is that this creation called the church, it actually stands to display the manifold wisdom of God, not just to the surrounding world, but in Paul's words, to the rulers and the authority in heavenly places. Angelic beings are in awe of the fruits of redemption when Christ holds up his church. Look ahead, if you're still in Ephesians, look over at Ephesians 3, verse 9, or listen to God's word. The plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Mark 7 foretells of the plan of God to unite a people to himself. And our gathering this morning right here is a display of the manifold wisdom of God to do just that. Look around right now. This is actually God's means to grow you. This is God's means to encourage you. This is God's ordained means to conform you to Christ's image. Right here. And this is God's means ultimately to display his glory. So that others might look at this and say, he does all things well. That is the purpose for which he saves us into not only uniting us to Christ, but uniting us to one another. So that we, like the very characters in these accounts, a Gentile woman, a deaf man, and a hungry crowd, we get to taste something and experience something of what Christ does that says not only he does all things well, but we're able to then look at one another and say that same thing. Wow. He does all things well. May the Lord continue to do this within our midst, building us up, that might be said of us. Father, would you be so gracious and so faithful to the promise of your word that as we see these things laid out for us, we might not only read them with our eyes, but that we might see the very fruit of your promises brought to fruition and unfolding here in our midst. Lord, we close in prayer, even as we open before considering your word. We are beggars in need of great mercy. Lord, would you continue to overwhelm us with the goodness of that fact of what you have given to us in Christ? Would it not only grow us in our, our adoration and our, our zeal and our worship of you, but Lord, in seeing the mercy that we've been given, would you help us to be those who gladly extend mercy to one another? Would you even change the very disposition and heart that we have towards one another that you, Father, might continue to receive glory through your church, that your manifold wisdom might be put on full display in recognizing how you've redeemed and who you've redeemed in such a way that you've placed us alongside one another. And Lord, would you continue to build your church? Would you promise that the very gates of hell will not prevail against your people? that you've called to yourself. So even today, Lord, we ask and we pray that you would draw your sheep unto yourself, that they might even hear your voice for the first time, the joy of knowing not only sins forgiven, but a new community to be founded. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.